Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Hal Phillips to speak about his new book, Generation Zero, about the 80s and 90s U.S. men's national team. Before we get going, you can subscribe to my writing site at grantwall.com. We are 11 days away from World Cup 2022. That's grantwall.com. I'll be covering the whole tournament from Qatar. But let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you, my friend? USMNT squad release day. (laughs) Here we go. Although, I mean, it's a bummer that it happens on the same day that Sadio Mane was ruled out for the World Cup for Senegal, and it just sort of, you know, can we can we wrap the the 26 players that uh, were named for the U.S. today in bubble wrap for the weekend so that there's no more injury issues? I just hate when these players get ruled out. I hate the League Cup with a the a passion, just the heat of a thousand suns. <laughs> but I hated the League Cup even more today because Christian Pulisic played in the League Cup, League Cup, and it was like. I, all I could think about was, dude, just don't get hurt. Against it's a big opponent a as well. They were playing Man City, a game that they eventually <laughs> lost. But uh, he is on this roster, and we're going to go through it position by position here. Uh, if you get some ambient noise, listeners, it's because I am literally at the location where the draw was announced in Brooklyn, New York City, at Brooklyn Steel, which is normally a concert venue. I think I'm in one of the back rooms where like if you're a band playing that you know one of the band members goes do, do you um, have like a, a bowl of m&ms with the green ones taken out <laughs> I, I forgot to get my request in <laughs> your, my your writer <laughs> <laughs> your demands are not met i cannot work under these conditions but it's sort of a who's who back here i got uh rights holders uh you know taylor twelman hurt gomez uh lots of folks around here including our old dear friend Landon Donovan got to say hello to. I miss Landon Wall and Witty. I know everyone else does too. Um, I thought about bringing him in to join us, but I guess he's got other things going on. He's going to be working for Fox at the World Cup, and I'm sure he's going out to a nice restaurant meal here in New York City at some point tonight. Um, but let's start uh, by, by diving into this. And I, I want to say before we dive in, 26 players, so three more than are usually allowed for World Cup rosters. And that in and of itself has sort of signaled to me, if you miss this roster, this World Cup roster, it's hard to complain because they even had three more spots than usual. And still, though, you might have some folks complaining uh, for missing this roster. And also, in general terms, more surprises for Greg Berhalter than maybe we were expecting, even from people who covered this on a regular basis. Greg Berhalter is usually a fairly conservative guy, sticks with his guys, and he didn't stick with all of his guys. And so I was surprised by some of these. Um, the, the big headline is going to be Zach Steffen missing the team entirely. And this was a guy who played and started a lot of the World Cup qualifying games that Berhalter has known for a very long time, who is healthy now. And even leading into this week, I would have said, knowing Berhalter, I expect him to start Zach Steffen at the World Cup ahead of Matt Turner. Not only will that not happen, Steffen's not even on the roster. Yeah, that that for me is the surprise. To me, I think it's sort of Greg Berhalter probably understanding World Cup squad dynamics more than your your average coach who hasn't been to a World Cup before because 
and and it's, it does sort of remind me of not taking Landon Donovan in 2014. Um, speaking of our friend Landon Donovan, because in, in my view, it sort of reminds me of the fact that well, if you take Landon, then everyone's going to clamor for him to start. And everyone is going to clamor for him to come on at every available opportunity. And maybe Greg Berhalter thinks that by taking Stefan, that you know th- there's going to be the implication that eventually he will start. And you signal to Matt Turner by taking Sean Johnson and Ethan Horvath, that's his job. You're the number one. It's your team now. And I think that that probably is the decision there. Still, I'm absolutely stunned. You, you kind of mentioned that we have this sort of background by covering the team and having gone and seen them in a few places and we feel like we've watched every game and watched every Burhalter press conference and we know this. I have to be honest, I feel like I sounded like a moron on on, on, on Monday's <laughs> podcast because I, I really thought that Greg Burhalter was going to completely stick to his guns and go down with his guys all the way to the end and there are several guys that didn't go to this, the, the camp in September. There are several guys that you know, in in my view, were sort of Berhalter favorites that didn't get picked, and Zach Steffen is the biggest shock for me. I, I'm and sort of like we had a, we had a little bit of time to dig, to digest it because Roger Gonzalez of CBS Sports reported yesterday that he wasn't going to make the squad. A report that proved to be correct, and I was really surprised. And and it was sort of one of those. Well, well, is he going to start? And the fact that he's going to make the team is so stunning because it felt like Berhalter had built the identity of the U.S. around Zach Steffen's ability to play with his feet, his ability to come off his line, and they were going to play a bit more transitional. I'm floored that he has not stuck with his player from his Columbus days with the U.S. men's national team. It felt like even in the face of all of the criticism that came Zach Steffen's way for his mistakes in Man City, for not playing in Man City, for his mistakes in Borough, for his mistakes with the U.S., that he was going to go down with Zach Steffen as his goalkeeper, and he's not. And I'm really surprised by that. And I wonder, to me, what it means a little bit about how the U.S. might tweak their system or tweak their style of play at this World Cup. And maybe also he decided Matt Turner is a great shot stopper, which we've all seen for a really long time. And the most important thing about being a goalkeeper is stopping goals from happening. So um, I will say this, because Berhalter just finished his press conference and we asked him about all this stuff. I kind of got that impression with Stefan where he felt like if Stefan wasn't going to be his starter, maybe he shouldn't go. Um, And that's an interesting one. You know, what he said specifically was that Sean Johnson, who's the number three keeper on this roster, is a great team guy. And that is what you want from your number three goalkeeper, because the chances of him playing are actually not very high at all. Even though France sent four goalkeepers uh, or put four goalkeepers on their roster, I guess presumably uh, Mike Mannion is not, you know, certain to be healthy or not, but still. Um, And Berhalter also talked about... Ethan Horvath having shown on multiple occasions, including with the U.S. national team, that he can be Johnny on the spot, as Burhalter put it. And you can bring him into a game if the goalkeeper gets hurt, like in the Nations League final, and he can make some big plays. So he feels good about Ethan Horvath. But uh, he said Turner's health should be okay. And, and as of right now, he's viewing him as the number one. Still, it's just, it's, it's still but, a surprise. Yeah, and and I do actually think you mentioned kind of how the the 26 changes things and I think there were several I would call them vibes picks uh by but like sort of with spots 23 through 26 Sean Johnson being one of them uh you sort of have to have a player who understands the the role of being a third goalkeeper I think Christian Roldan and Jordan Morris are probably that as well and I would say DeAndre Yedlin as well despite his his experience and he's played a lot 
I think in, a, in an ideal world, you probably pick uh, Sergio Desta right back, and you know maybe Shaq Moore uh, is that as well. But I, I don't know how much Yedlin is going to play at the World Cup. I certainly hope he plays at the World Cup, given I've got the connection of seeing him every week at Inter Miami. But I, I, I do think that Ber- Berhalter is un- sort of understanding of dynamics there. I just can't fathom how in qualifying... Doesn't it almost seem like a waste of time to have had the debate to have had Stefan start, I mean, I, I'll go back and look at it now, but let's say seven or eight games during qualifying, and you don't even take him? Why Why did you even go through the exercise of, of picking him in the first place, of having him go through all the experiences of qualifying, through, you know, having him seek out a loan to, to Middlesbrough, so that right. he can, like, why, why, you know, at that point, just say, hey, you're not coming, stay at Man City and continue to develop as a goalkeeper. It just sort of feels like why why was so much time invested in Zach Steffen if he's not even going to make the plane? Like if you don't rate him above Ethan Horvath, why why did you ever like why did you ever have him as your starter in the first place and 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 take so much criticism for it? Yeah, lots of questions here um, that you know we don't we don't have a total answer for, but he's not going. Um, and Berhalter did say it was uh, one of the hardest conversations he's ever had with Stefan that he his process was he actually contacted all of the guys first and had FaceTimes with them who were going and then he had the difficult conversations with the guys who were not so uh, that started Sunday continued on Monday and then let's look at defenders because that's also the other big surprise that was also broken uh, this one by Michele Giannone of uh, uh, Tudane Univision uh, that Tim Ream is on the roster. And if you go back to our conversation, you and me, a few days ago, it was kind of like, I love this today, actually, uh, from Greg. Uh, our conversation, you and me, was like, if you're watching Fulham, you really should pick Tim Ream. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what Berhalter said at the press conference. He was like, someone asked him about it, he goes, have you watched Fulham play lately? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and made the same points that we've been making, which is, if you watch Fulham, this Fulham experience in the Premier League is very different from their Premier League experience before, and the same goes for Tim Ream, that he was not very good, as his entire team was not very good last time they were in the Premier League, and they've all been much better this time in the Premier League, including Tim Ream, who did pretty well against Erling Holland the other day. And so for him, I mean, Berhalter made it sound like it was a pretty obvious call to make, but keep in mind, it had been... October of 21, the last time Reem was even called into the U.S. team, and he turned it down for family reasons. That's when Walker Zimmerman had been left out, got called in, and then he took that opportunity, Zimmerman, and eventually became the starter, which is pretty impressive. I think Tim Reem has a chance to start at the World Cup Hmm. uh, next to Zimmerman, also next to his clubmate at left back, Jedi Robinson. Uh, So pretty impressive from Tim Ream to put himself in this position and I think we're going to see him at the World Cup. It was interesting that and, and we'll obviously get to the striker position later but form-based choices I think were the story of this because I didn't think that's how Greg Berhalter managed his team. Right. I, I, I thought he sort of treated it like a club team and that it's your performances with us that matter than your performances with your club and I think the picks that he made today were a lot based off recent form. I think Tim Ream owes an enormous debt of gratitude to Marco Silva the Fulham manager because yeah. I think the way that Fulham play 
is entirely the reason why he's in this. If you go back to when they came up with Slavisa Jakanovic, they were very uh, possession-heavy and forward-pressing and left ream really exposed. Same thing with Scott Parker. They never figured out their defending, and they eventually got sent back down. And now this third time that they're up in the Premier League, they have an incredibly solid foundation. They have good cover and holding midfield, and it's allowed Ream to really thrive. He's sort of a fan favorite at Fulham. If you if you ever go to a game at Fulham and he does something, uh, you know, he puts in a big tackle or something that is worthy of applause, the crowd will shout Ream, and, and like he's got a, a, a real sort of cult hero status at Fulham for how long he's been there. But it it did it didn't seem to matter until this go around in the Premier League and really these last. Six weeks? I mean, I guess you go back to the the opening day against Liverpool when everyone thought, well, boy, Fulham are right. really doing this with Tim Ream, huh? And and he, he held his own, and he's he's held his own the entire time this season. I think now I'm, I'm sort of on the back foot as an analyst in a weird way where I'm like, okay, I didn't think he was going at all. Um, I still wonder what would have happened if Chris Richards were fit. I think that's no, a real he, question. I, wonder I think if, it would have been Chris Richards going. Ahead of who? Ahead of Ream or ahead yes, of yes, Carter? Yes. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, you know, if Richards were fit, then, you know, maybe uh, he wouldn't even be on the plane. But if that's the case, then why, why, why do you think he would be a starter? So, but I, but I think the, you know, form, I think, has now made me really think about some of the questions here about who starts and, and who plays against Wales. Because if you're going off form, yeah, you'd absolutely pick Ream. But I didn't think we were doing this off form. And now that the squad is being picked on the basis of form, I'm sort of left wondering, well, is he then going to pick the starting 11 against Wales on the basis of form? Yeah, good question. We'll have to wait and see on that. Defenders who have made it, Cameron Carter-Vickers, Serginho Dest, Aaron Long, Shaq Moore, Tim Ream, Anthony Robinson, Joe Scally, DeAndre Yedlin, and Walker Zimmerman. Uh, for me, the other surprise there probably that Shaq Moore made it. Reggie Cannon did not. Um, you know, I don't think either one of those guys is, is going to start. Uh, so you're, you're talking about the fringes of the squad, but uh, still tougher Reggie Cannon, who's a really good, good dude and team guy, and I think brings value both as a right back and a right center back. Uh, if they decided to play with three in the back, do you want to go to midfielders here? Let's go to midfielders. Yeah, um, I, yeah. The, the the only thing I'd say though is that I I am surprised along with you that Reggie Cannon didn't go just because again he's another Berhalter favorite. Um, was never a personal favorite of mine watching the team. Uh, but I I am surprised that again for that positional versatility. I also think. If you're going to take an extra number, I'm surprised that it wasn't in midfield, particularly in attacking midfield. I know that Georgi Mihailovic never got the chance to even play with the national team, but it feels like why would you have a fifth fullback when, you know, Joe Scally can also play right back. He plays right back more often than he plays left back. You essentially have four right backs in the team. Yeah. Feels like a glut for an unnecessary reason at that position. You could have taken a fifth center back, another holding midfielder, uh, or an attacking midfielder. Hell, maybe even a fourth striker. We can get to that. But uh, I'm, I'm surprised that the numbers are, are loaded up there. Or if you're Brazil, you can take nine forwards. <laughs> uh, <laughs> midfielders, Brendan Aronson, who's listed as a midfielder, and he usually is not. He's usually listed as a forward slash winger. Kellen Acosta, Tyler Adams, Luca De La Torre, Weston McKenney, Eunice Musa, Christian Roldan. No surprises here, really. Luca De La Torre has had an injury at Celta Vigo, but Berhalter said he's pretty close to being uh, healthy. Couldn't go 90 minutes in game one, he said, of the World Cup, but they, they're going to get him ready. So he sounds like he's able to play. And then, you know, Christian Roldan, who, if you follow this team closely, 
that's not that surprising. I guess the only question for me, I know there's some fans who, who aren't huge supporters of, of Christian Roldan, but he's a guy who brings a lot of intangibles, also a good team guy, uh, gets things done. And I guess for me, the main question was, is he going to recover in time from his groin surgery? And apparently, Berhalter thinks he has. I will turn this section over to you, though, because with... Roldan, you mentioned those intangibles and those those qualities. I, you're you're around the team more often. I think you're going to have to explain that one uh, to the fans because I think really what fans don't want, and and this is very harsh, is I think any player who is going to sort of nail on to be an MLS lifer, where they're never going to get the move to Europe or to Mexico or to wherever. Um, I and Roldan, I think, and Jordan Morris are probably the two players that get uh, are probably going to get the most criticism. Wait, Jordan Morris is Christian Roldan? Like they're they're in the team because you know they bring something off the field. They're players 24, 25, and twenty six. I think if they play, it means a lot of things have gone wrong or you're trying to lock up a game late. Can you sort of articulate what those things off the field are that make him a part of this team? I mean, there are no assholes on this U.S. team. There have been in the past. Um, I don't think there's many that I would can think of present day who are in the mix, but there's just a much better vibe around this U.S. team as a whole than there was under Bruce Arena or Jurgen Klinsmann. And... You know, especially under Klinsman, there were a lot of guys who did not look forward to coming into the national team. And so I do think there are good dude aspects, certainly to Christian Roldan and Jordan Morris. Obviously, what they bring on the field is tremendously important, too. And I think for Roldan, what we're talking about is he's not going to play much at the World Cup, but... You know, if you need to bring him on in the 80th minute to help kill off a game that you're leading by a goal, uh, I could see that being a role for him. I think back a little bit to Kobe Jones's role on the 2002 World Cup team, where that, you know, Kobe Jones was toward the end of his career, uh, at least with the national team by that point. And, and yet he was still very useful uh, when you brought him into games during that World Cup, including the Mexico game. Uh, that everyone remembers. And so uh, I think there is a value to guys like that. And also, too, from covering Roldan uh, around Seattle's Champions League triumph run, uh, everyone you talk to up in Seattle is like, this guy wants to win and does stuff to win. All the like little and sometimes big things that not everyone does. I don't know if you go remember back to the, the CONCACAF Champions League final in the opening leg um there was a, a real cagey play that Roldan made that led to the Seattle goal uh he stayed down on the ground and waited for a video review that ended up giving Seattle an opportunity to score and um it was a huge play uh and, and he makes those types of plays he's capable of making those types of plays uh so that's why I think he's on the team and and uh, so it's not a surprise to any of us who who follow this regularly, and this is an example, I think, of a guy having earned Burhalter's trust uh, and going with that player, even though Roldan hasn't played much uh, in recent months due to the injury and the surgery that he had. Um, in terms of forwards, the list is Jesus Ferreira, Jordan Morris, Christian Pulisic, Gio Reyna, Josh Sargent, Tim Weah, and Haji Wright. And interestingly here, Jordan Pifak, not taken. 
Ricardo Pepe not taken. I thought Pepe was going to be on this roster. You know, he was around in, in the camp in September. He has been producing more goals and assists uh, on loan in the Netherlands with Groningen than he was at Augsburg. Seemed to me like Pepe was going to make this team on a 26-man roster and be one of the three center forwards. He's not. Um, and, you know, PFOC, we can kind of sense a little bit, I think, that, that he's just not rated by Burhalter. Um, but it was interesting, too. You, you know, you talk about this, this theme of guys in form, and Burhalter talked about that in the press conference, said, look, Haji Wright is in second among goal scorers in the Turkish league, which has a lot of good players in it. And the point that he made was the, the starting striker for Belgium is in the Turkish league and has fewer goals than Haji Wright does. And I, yeah, you can go down a rabbit hole with that. But, um, <laughs> you know, Haji Wright had an opportunity in June, didn't grab it with both hands, wasn't called in in September. But this came down, I think, to... Oh, the other thing that I thought was interesting, Burhalter said about not taking Pepe and bringing Sargent instead is that um, he thinks that Sargent, by playing in the championship, is dealing with more physical play from defenders that the U.S. could well face against England and Wales in the World Cup than Pepe is by playing in the Netherlands. And my initial thought to that was, well, if... Pepe had known this, he should have gone on loan to a team in the championship. Yeah, and I, I think I think we should take all of these. I, I think the striker situation is fascinating because when you have six strikers, you have none. And so uh, you can really make arguments on behalf of, of anybody. I think, and I saw Jenny Chu made this point, if not for Pepe, I, I mean, who even knows if, if Greg Berhalter would have kept his job? Remember how dire right. it was in Honduras um, when he comes off the bench at halftime, scores two goals in his U.S. debut as an 18-year-old, and what? Are, and I think put in another assist, and then scored against Jamaica in the very in, in the next qualifier, which was in the next window, and he looked like at that point that he was a runaway train as a, as a prospect and as a player. And I think you know we, we talked about form being, I think, a little bit more of a emphasis than I would have thought. I think club moves gone wrong is one of the big stories here. And I think Zach Steffen can maybe look back on his move to Manchester City and say, I th maybe he went to the wrong place. And that doesn't, you never turn that down in a million years. If Pep Guardiola comes calling and you're an American goalkeeper, you shout yes into the phone and do it every time. But his lack of game time, Maybe the unorthodox way that Pep coaches that position and how he basically kind of spent 18 months on the training ground trying to become Ederson didn't really work out for him in terms but of... Supposedly, like, Burhalter likes that. Right, exactly. But I guess it wasn't good enough to earn him a spot in the team. I think Pepe, you know, forcing a move to Europe... Um, specifically to a club that was struggling in the relegation zone. You got to come right in and fit right in. It was just the wrong move. And both sides have acknowledged it because he's on loan right now in Holland. And he's reportedly, according to Fabrizio Romano, going to be sold in the summer. They've come to an agreement. You're out uh, or I'm leaving, which, whichever it is. And that move was such a disaster that it prevented him from making, this, from making the plane to Qatar. This one is actually the one that most reached outside of my soccer bubble. I've gotten texts from lots of... Pepe didn't come? What? Pepe? Get, this is insane because he had that moment in time where he really captured the U.S. fan, the US fan attention. But 
You also, he has not scored in any of his last 10 appearances for the U.S. He played 16 times in the Bundesliga or in, in, in games for Augsburg and didn't score in any of them. And he's found some form in Holland, but to Greg Berhalter's point, it's not exactly a difficult league to go and score goals in. So I, I, I'm not broken up about it. If you made me pick three strikers, I would have picked Ferreira, Sargent, and, uh, and Pepe. But I think you can make a case for any of them. I think Wright is an absolute stunner, though. That I was watching it in my in my living room, and I that was a mouth hanging open the, at the television. I would never have thought if we had talked about the striker situation, I would have brought up Brandon Vasquez before I brought him up. Obviously, Pepe. I mean, there's there's strikers that you could think of, you know, five, six, seven before I would have thought of Haji Wright. I'm stunned. You also remember uh, going back to um, the the June window, which I, I want to talk about in a second. Uh, it, so Greg Greg Berhalter, after his poor performance, was it in Honduras uh, that that they played there? Was it in El, El Salvador? I forget which game it was in, in the Nations League. El Salvador in the Nations League. And the quote from Greg Berhalter after the game was, "It's always difficult when players get a chance and they don't capitalize on it. It's difficult for the coaches and it's difficult for teammates. We thought he could be a force, but it just wasn't his night tonight." And I remember we talked about it in that moment. It was our parting thought from the U.S. camp. Oh, it's, it's, that's his World Cup gone. There's another striker. Cross him off. No chance he's going. And then he makes the plane after not playing in September. That was the last game he played for the U.S. How? Why? And and I, I just, I I was floored to have heard his name called. Yeah, it it's surprising to me. It's also a reflection that there really isn't some great U.S. center forward out there right now. Where you're like, you know, where it's like Pulisic, like, that guy's a lock, you know, it's yeah. just not that way. And I do think more than ever now, the starting center forward is up in the air because Ferreira has not been very good down the stretch for FC Dallas. Does potentially Josh Sargent get a shot at the World Cup to start at center forward? Does Haji Wright? Like, I would lean if I had to it's at Ferreira, with Ferreira right now, but who knows? I mean, there, there's a lot of possibilities there. And if, if Berhalter is suddenly taken by this interest in form greater than he's had in the past and especially at this position maybe he starts hard to ride who knows yeah and and to sort of get back to the 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 point that i sort of alluded to about june I, i went and looked this up so the u.s were together for 19 days in june they played four games together and if you look at that squad it far more resembles the team that's going to qatar than the squad that got like gathered in September, or really any other of the U.S. squads. I think this is the one from June that most represents it. And I wonder if Greg Berhalter went into it thinking, this is our pre-World Cup camp. And we're going to, you know, like this is going to be a group of players that is going to be together for three weeks. We're going to be on the training ground more than we ever will at any point, even more time than we'll be on the training ground before the World Cup. And we're gonna work on stuff. And they tried a bunch of different things. They started Sean Johnson in a game. Uh, there was no Zach Steffen in that camp. Uh, he missed it due to personal reasons. So Horvath, Johnson, and uh, Matt Turner were the goalkeepers then. And you go through that squad. A 21 of the 26 players that have made their way onto the plane to Qatar, including Haji Wright, played in that June camp, and they were together for three weeks. The five. That that didn't that weren't part of that team were Dest, who obviously would have been if he were fit, Reyna, who would have been if he were fit, and the other three were Tim Ream, Shaq Moore, and Josh Sargent. So you can say they are the last players to have made the plane on the basis of form by making good moves or uh, playing well in this fall season. But 
yeah, I, I'm I'm sort of interested that that was the group that most stuck together and is the one that's kind of most going to be on the plane to guitar. The other one that I think we should address as it relates both Pepe and Malik Tillman um, is the fact that they don't make it after the U.S. won recruiting battles to get them. There's a little bit of a conversation about, well, we kind of forced him to cap tie. You could even say uh, with Pepe, he was kind of pushed to go to Europe because he was playing really well in MLS. So go try yourself in Europe. And, you know, whatever guidance Pepe has gotten in the last year has not helped him make the plane to Qatar. And might he be resentful of that? Might Malik Tillman be resentful of the fact that he's not making it? Although it's not like he was making it with the German national team either but you don't know what assurances were made I'm surprised that Tillman was a little bit more of a shout particularly for that final midfield position ahead of Roldan but he just uh, wasn't good enough and over the last quite a while now I mean he got off to a good start to the season with Rangers and when they qualified for the Champions League group stage I thought to myself this is great opportunity for Tillman and James Sands to play in some really elite games and earn their way onto the World Cup team. Neither one of those players ended up making the World Cup team in the end. I, I do want to ask this before I forget it. Do you think if Ricardo Pepe were still at FC Dallas, he would be on the World Cup team? Yes, I do. Um, because, uh, and, and, and that's also an interesting counterfactual as it relates to Ferreira as well, because he then became a DP player. He then became the number nine at Dallas. Um, but I do. I, I think, you know... It, it was sort of almost impossible to fathom that he would have stayed at FC Dallas for a full year after the season he had in 2021 with all the goals that he scored and scoring for the national team. It just felt like he was a rocket ship and he was going to go somewhere. Um, but maybe if he goes to Holland in, in, in the first place and he scores a bunch of goals and he stays in, in form and fitness all year long, that would have been uh, a good move. Maybe, as you said, a move to the championship. But um, it, it, it was never going to be linear development and I'm glad that he tested himself and it didn't work. It'll probably benefit him. It's He's 19. He was born yeah, in I'm not, 2000. I'm not writing him off. Yeah. yeah, he was born in 2003. Like, I don't think it's this huge travesty that he didn't make it. He obviously is one of the best number nine prospects the U.S. has ever had, and you wish he could have done enough to make it. But um, I, I do think that if he maintained, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20 goal season with Dallas this year, he probably would have been on the plane to Qatar because Ferreira is there because he did that with Dallas this year. And it's sort of better to be informed than to try and push yourself to a little bit of a higher level um, and fail, at least for now. Maybe that experience will benefit him in the longer term. Yeah, generally I want guys to want to aspire to go to Europe to be sold for transfer fees like $20 million like Pepe was. So I hope this doesn't deter that from happening uh, in the future because I think there's certainly a scenario in which he would have made the World Cup team had he gone to Europe when he did. What do you make, of, think- the, what do you make of Berhalter's overall, I guess, sort of rationales? Um, because it just sort of feels like... We get an explanation, but I'm not sure it's the explanation. Like when you hear about like, oh, like he sort of came prepared with a dossier about Haji Wright. He came prepared with his canned answer that he gave to both television and the press conference about Zach Steffen. When I, it it, it did sort of make me wonder uh, sort of what else was there because... Uh, when he when he was asked about Stefan both times, is I want to talk about the players we do have, not the player yeah, who's not coming. And then and then he eventually got pressed on it. What did you make of the explanations? And do you sort of buy that we're sort of getting the real reasons why these players either did or didn't go? Well, you can only go by what evidence people give you, unless something is reported 
otherwise, you know, and, and there's always going to be conspiracy theorists out there saying, oh, there's like some big th blow up that happened with John Brooks and, and Burhalter. And, but we, we've never seen or heard any evidence from either side about that. Um, and so, I mean, you always wonder, and I think reporters should, should look into things. Um, you know, my experience for my book, especially covering Beckham's first two years at the LA Galaxy, was that a lot of things get said publicly in the day-to-day -to, -day to the newspapers that are just outright lies. <laughs> and, and, you know, if you read that book, there was a lot of stuff that uh, was actually going on behind the scenes that wasn't being reported. And so I was able to break a lot of news in the book. Uh, that hadn't gotten out there before. So certainly there are always things with every team that don't get reported publicly, but are those things the reason why Zach Steffen didn't get called in? Um, you know, we don't have any evidence of anything beyond what we're being told at this point. And every coach thinks about before he meets the media, like Greg Berhalter did today, how am I going to address this stuff? Um, you know, and, and he's sort of got this canned response now for what his what expectations are for the World Cup. You know, that there's going to be two tournaments, one group stage and one knockout stage. And, you know, I mean, like you're kind of ready. <laughs> you know what's coming. And so, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of good reporters covering this team over the next few weeks. There are right now. And uh, uh, we'll see what ends up coming out. I, I, I do want to give some respect to, we mentioned Mikhail Giannone of uh, Tudayene with the news break. Um, uh, which, which, which With Reem, yeah. With Reem being on the roster. Um, you know, and then Roger Gonzalez with CBS with Stefan not making it. You know, when you report that stuff, that was significant you better be right and they were right so good stuff guys yeah uh fair fair play to them and uh, i guess there there is uh one more i guess issue that we didn't really cover I, i'm sort of surprised at how much criticism the morris selection took um again another mls lifer that's sort of gonna uh you know although i guess he, he went he tried his hand in wales oddly enough and uh, and it didn't really work out for him but uh one one that i'm surprised uh has taken some criticism just because i mean maybe you can say aronson is the fourth winger but He's the fourth winger. He's not like he didn't take Pepe's place in the team. In all likelihood, you're probably not right. taking four strikers for a one striker system. He right. Berhalter made his decision on three. If you want to quibble, right v Pepe. Um, fair enough. But uh, I, I I'm surprised at how much criticism the the Morris selection took because I'm not sure. I went looking through the U.S. player pool. I don't know who else you're taking as your fourth winger unless you're saying Aronson is your fourth winger and then you bring in another midfielder, which could have been Tillman, could have been uh, Mihailovic, could have been players that uh, maybe wouldn't have been deserving. But again, I think one of the things that you and I have talked a lot about, but we should probably reiterate is it's not the 26 best players. It's the best team. And right. I think that Morris, Roldan, Yedlin, Sean Johnson are fulfilling roles and filling out a team that maybe aren't the 22nd, 23rd, or 23rd, 24th, 25th, and 26th best players, but they are fulfilling a role in the team that is, I, I imagine, to a, a manager that has played at a World Cup before, going to be vital when they go and you know lock themselves in a hotel in Qatar for two weeks. And, and let's be honest here, Chris. There is a section of the U.S. fan base that has such a simplistic view of the world that if you play in MLS, you are not good. And yeah. they're going to complain simply because someone plays in MLS. I just don't have any time for that. I really don't. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, especially, I mean, <laughs> MLS has led to the growth of the region, which the U.S. was on the wrong end of in 2018. And, yeah, it's nonsense. And who's the player you most af- are afraid of on Wales? It's Gareth Bale, and he played at LAFC this season. Like, it's it's real cognitive dissonance. I understand, you know, ultimately, if a player is in MLS for the duration of his career, he just has a certain ceiling, and I understand that maybe you don't view that talent level as enough uh, to be playing on the world stage, but... It's it's kind of ridiculous to just rule a player out because they're in MLS for the entirety of their career or that they can't fulfill a role in the team or that Jordan Morris isn't a talented and skilled player. He absolutely brings things to the table. They help win Seattle championships, plural. So I, I'm completely with you. I think there is certainly a section of the fan base that would rather see you you know, playing in the second division in England than playing in MLS every week. And, and, and I... I just don't understand why you don't just judge a, judge a player on their merits. Um, I think Jordan, you you can't watch Jordan Morris and not see some merits to his game. I do think he's he's not at his very best in in recent months, so I, I think that's fair. Um, I think he can bring something late in the game, uh, or even the last twenty to thirty minutes of a game potentially, um, in terms of speed, smarts, goal creation ability maybe even finishing who knows but i don't expect him to play a lot I, yeah I, I, I don't and so it is what it is anything else you got uh no i'm, I'm just really looking forward to the <laughs> wales game now we're a week and a half away holy hell we're a week and a half away although i ask you uh i guess we can do a full preview as we get closer to it but uh on on the day against wales who starts at the nine who are your two center backs Ferreira starts at the nine, and the two center backs are, I would like to see Zimmerman and Ream. I think we'll see Zimmerman and Long. I am going to guess uh, that for because of the fact that Wales have a few players that play in England, that it's going to be Josh Sargent because of that sort of familiarity with the style of play. Uh, I think Josh Sargent is going to start, and I think the two center backs are going to be Zimmerman and Long. Uh, because I still think there's there's a, there's a little bit of stubbornness somewhere in there, Greg in, in Greg Berhalter. I don't think he's completely changed because he surprised us with his World Cup squad. Uh, maybe he comes out and is you know a completely different man. It's about form and it's about what you've done what you've done for me lately. Uh, but I I still think he's got a little bit of that Zimmerman and Long. I think they'll be the two starting center backs. Good stuff, Chris. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Grant. Now here's my interview with Hal Phillips. It's time for another book talk segment, and our guest is Hal Phillips. His new book is called Generation Zero, Founding Fathers, Hidden Histories, and the Making of Soccer in America. It's a really fun read, and it's available wherever you get your books. Congratulations, Hal, and thanks for coming on the show. Uh, My pleasure, Grant. Lots to talk about here, but one thing I love about your book is how you're kind of guided by a central question. How did soccer, professional soccer in the U.S., go from being stigmatized and made fun of in the 1980s and and before that to what it is now, which is a cool sport followed largely by young people with a big future here. And you have sort of a central thesis on this. What is it and, and how did you arrive at that? Well, I guess I arrived at it about 2010 when you know, this sport that I had followed and played all my life crept up on me and went ahead and made it in America after decades of warning and anticipation, some of it false flag operations, whatever, 
it, it, it appeared to have made it. And so I said, well, where did this, you know, when did this happen? And I think a lot of people point to the 94 World Cup as that tipping point. But when you really look at it, it's really the 1989 national team. Um, that 94 team was mostly guys from that team. I think they had six starters on that team. But also, that's just an event. That's not really explaining how those players showed up. And when you go back and, and see where the 1989 um, team came from, they all played soccer in the 70s in the proverbial youth soccer revolution that produced that team and, oh, by the way, the women's team that won the first world championship in 1991. So that's the story I tried to tell because I didn't think anyone else had done it. It's interesting, right? Because, you know, the sort of dark decades where the U.S. didn't qualify for the Men's World Cup from 1950 to 1990, uh, there hasn't been much at all written about that. Yeah. And I guess before we go any further, sort of what's your background with soccer as a sport? Well, I played it all my life. I'm a product of the youth soccer revolution myself. That's one of the conceits of the book is that these guys I've written about are exactly my age. They billeted in my house, you know, for tournaments. And I played against them in college and in the netherworld of the urban ethnic leagues in the 80s. So. Um, I've played it, you know, at a pretty high level, but um, that's my connection to the game. But I was, you know, very, very aware, as everyone was, I'm 58 years old growing up, that this was this sport that dichotomously was the sport of the future, everyone get on board, and then constantly derided by the mainstream. And in the 70s, it really did feel like things were happening. In the 80s, everything just went to shit. So it really was... Uh, an amazing journey that I participated in. You tell a lot of great stories about Generation Zero, as you call it. Why did you come up with the Generation Zero name? And, and what are some of your favorite stories that you tell here? Well, Generation Zero is really just my nickname for Generation X. Um, and so all these guys that we're writing about, all the women on the 91 team, they were all born in the 60s and raised on soccer in the 70s as soccer natives. And my argument is, these are really the first soccer natives this country ever produced. That's why they were so successful. Because if you want to mainstream a sport, you have to get everyone on board. And you can't do that when you're relying on guys who have picked up the game in high school or recent immigrants living in, you know, immigrant on, you know, conclaves in cities dotted around the country. You need coverage. The 70s provided that coverage. And I think that uh, <laughs> Generation Zero is... It all started with them, so it just seemed to fit. It was a riff on Generation X, and oh, by the way, everything started with these guys. Without them, we'd be nowhere, or it would have taken 20 years more. What are some of your favorite stories that you tell here? There's a lot of them. I like, well, I like the 80s because I was playing soccer at that time with and against these guys, so I like the idea that NASL had to die in order to birth this actually mature football generation because I think a lot of people think about NASL and say, geez, why didn't we, why didn't we ever qualify for the World Cup? Like in 1986, those were all NASL guys. But NASL was so flawed and everyone seemed to know it at the time. I don't think we knew it. I don't think the, the young people who were observing knew it. But, you know, these guys weren't playing in the central positions on the field. There were a quota of only two of them per team. And um, when that went away... Coincidentally, our team goes on and qualifies for the World Cup and the Olympics. I don't think there's a coincidence there. I think there's a connection. But I also love the idea that all these guys had to professionalize themselves in the mid-80s when things were darkest. 
and ended up, you know, there was no NASL. There was, people don't realize, there was no second division American soccer league. That folded in 83. So what do they do? They can't go to, no one's playing in Europe. They went and played in the urban ethnic leagues, like the Cosmopolitan Super League and the Greek League in New York and the Lhasa League, where I played up in eastern Massachusetts and the Philadelphia and San Francisco leagues. They made themselves the players that they were there. So I think that's a nice tribute, actually, to the old model that prevailed until NASL of these urban ethnic regional leagues, producing a lot of good players, but never enough to put us over the top. In the final days of the NASL, there was something called Team America. <laughs> and not everyone that I know is even aware of it. Now, Pablo Maurer did a good story on it uh, uh, for The Athletic, or maybe it was the MLS website back in the day. And, and it was really mm -hmm. neat because like, I wasn't even that aware of it. Like, What was Team America? Well, in 83, I think everyone knew NASL was in trouble. And they were like, how can we pimp this sport more effectively to the soccer public? And they came up with this idea of just putting all the Americans of note on a single team in NASL, which was something that was being done at the time. They did this in Eastern Europe a lot. They put amateur, quote unquote, amateur players in a professional league just to, to train them up. And it made sense. And I think Team America did make sense. Um, but they uh, basically lost the last 10 games of the season in the NASL campaign. That was 1983. And at that point, things were so squirrely at the Federation and at NASL itself that they basically pulled the plug. And I think you'll remember from the book, I mean, I think it was a great idea. I think that if they had had a league to play in, it would have been a very useful thing because, once again, in NASL, if you're a central you know, midfielder trying to get time on a, on a professional team in this country, you couldn't do it. They'd stick you right back because they brought some guy in from Romania to do that. So Team America let Americans play all the positions. And this is something Ricky Davis has made very clear. Um, you know, all through the NASL, guys just didn't get a chance to play in the middle of the field, including him getting moved up the field, you know, for the national team. He's not a creative player. He's like a ball-winning number five, you know. And he had to play out of position because he never got a chance to play his true position, you know, for the Cosmos. Are there any other particular people you'd like to mention that you think have been especially under-recognized for their contribution in making soccer bigger in this country? Well, one is Werner Fricker, who was the Federation president during the 80s and really was quite a visionary, um, brought the World Cup in 94 to this country, not single-handedly, but it was his push. Um, and he hired Gansler to coach that team. Now, Gansler was a friend of his, um, and... Um, I'll name the other guy that Gensler replaced as the second guy who I think is underappreciated, and that's Lothar Osiander, who coached um, the national team from, what, February 1986 to February 1989, um, and did an amazing job with an, just an extraordinarily young, untested, unformed team, really turned them into a unit that Gensler further improved upon, but qualified this country for the Olympic Games in 88, where they played great. And I think if they hadn't played so great, Fricker might have fired him then. But he, he did too well with that team in Korea. And um, when Gansler did so well with the under-20 national team in 1989, um, they saw their opportunity to bring this guy in. But those two guys, I think, are pretty, you know, sort of giants. But we, I mean, I think that whole period, people don't know anything about that team. 
Um, you know, they know about Paul Calgary and all the guys who went forward, but so many guys participated in that program and so many coaches made it possible. But it's a bit of a black spot on uh, in, the, in the American soccer history. And so I was glad to give them a little ink. I mean, I just want to say thank you for doing this because this is stuff that I've been craving um, and, you know, have been aware of over the years, but not in this level of detail. So it, it's just such a good read. A couple more questions for you here. Our old friend Andy Markovitz, the yeah. University of Michigan professor, gets mentioned a fair amount in this book. Andy is the guy I call the Charles Grodin on David Letterman of this podcast. He has been an interview guest more than anybody else. What about Andy's work has stood out to you over the years? Well, I read Offside, um, Soccer and American Exceptionalism in researching this book, and it's just chock full of amazing information. So I pilfered it and attributed it, you know, every single time, but I did it like a madman because there's just so much there. Uh, and also he taught at Wesleyan where I went to college and we overlapped, but, you know, didn't know each other. So that was weird. When I first found out about this guy, I was like, who is this guy? No, he's, um, he's such an amazing character, not just as an academic, but as a cultural sort of, um, star. I mean, he, he's like, an, there just aren't that many old fashioned Vietnamese intellectuals, Viennese intellectuals that greet you with my dear Hal or my, my dear Grant. I just love that about him. He's so enthusiastic and, you know, full disclosure, I, I quoted him in the book and called him out of the blue for a blurb and he couldn't have been nicer. Read the whole freaking thing and, um, and then wrote me a great blurb and now we're stable mates in, uh, in our publisher. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I mean, it's interesting to me, I guess, when you, um, when you look at what Andy has, has studied over the years and, and, uh, and what you've done with it here, just uh, I, I'm surprised that there hasn't been more that's been done. You know, I mean, even at in for academic studies, I remember when I was mm -hmm. a student in college, I wanted to write my thesis, which I eventually did on politics and soccer in the United or in Argentina. Right. And I had a lot of academics basically tell me they didn't think it was a serious idea uh, because it was sports. Right. And have you, has that contributed, you think, to, to sort of why there hasn't been much done on this era or, or not? I don't know. I know that that particular subject that Andy sort of made his bones on, I, the idea that America is a black hole on the map of soccer in the world, that I think was hefty enough that people were interested. And of course, as an academic publisher, it's not like they're going to do anything you want, but they're a lot more open-minded if you've written books for them before. But I, I don't know. I think that in, in America, I think that the default response was, oh, it was 1994. That changed it. We got the World Cup. Everyone got on board. What's the mystery? Um, so I think that's part of it. You also, I really like this, put things outside of the sporting contest or context in the sense of talking about uh, generational studies, uh, mm. sort of theoretical stuff. And I like that. How, what went into that decision and what sort of research did you do then to, to talk about, you know, generational studies over the years? Well, as you know, when you, when you take on a book project, the architecture of that project is always changing. And, you know, as you get further and further into the subject and figure stuff out, but, you know, this book does not have a villain, but if it did, it would be the baby boomers because 
time and time again, the, the, the sport was presented to them and they just eschewed it every time and left it for dead. So it sort of fell into the lap of the next generation down the line and that was Generation X. So that was interesting to me, but I did read a book in the 2000s called Generations by um, authors uh, Robert Strauss and Neil Howe. It was amazing. Um, it really, I'm a history student. I've studied that at college and I pretty much read nothing but history now. And I've never seen it presented in this way. And it's a little pop history, you know, uh, that serious students sort of look down their nose at. But I was just blown away by the way things fit together, these generations. And one of the things that also jumped out at me in the context of this story was, you know, Generation X is obviously a generation, a cohort that I write about. But, and then you have the baby boomers on one side of us, um, sort of pressing us and ignoring soccer and gobbling up the culture the entire time, I mean, my entire life. But then you have the generation of our parents, the silent generation, who um, coached us all through the 70s without a clue as to what they were doing, which was, you know, sort of fun to write about, but it really was true. I mean, all across the country, um, youth soccer teams were headed by silent generation moms and dads that just didn't know anything about soccer. So my hat's off to them. I like the, I like the whole, do you watch Mad Men, Grant? Are you yeah. a fan? Yeah. Uh, Mad Men framed this for me in a way that um, was really useful because that show was about the silent generation. And you see the young baby boomers sort of coming up behind them and getting ready to basically overtake them in the culture. You know, Generation X, we're the, we're the children of, of silent generation people. And we have seen, I mean, the baby boomers taught us in school. They made us sing all those Carpenters and Cat Stevens songs and music class. And they've been dominating the culture my whole life. So um, it's almost impossible to write about any subject from the 70s and the 80s without bringing them into it. So I hope I didn't take too many pot shots at them because uh, there are some perfectly nice boomers out there. <laughs> from a How soccer- are you, by the way? I'm 48. Right. You're about 10 years younger than me. Yeah. But the, the real thing that, that really jumps out is, you know, if you're 48, you grew up in a country, you remember growing up in a soccer indifferent nation. Yeah. And that was because boomers never took it to their bosom. Um, it was left to the next one to do that. Um, and so it's really revelatory for people my age, and I assume yours too. If you remember growing up in America in the 80s, I mean, the, the, the progress the sport has made is really sort of spectacular. It's almost yeah. hard to believe. Yeah, it really is. Where do you think we're going in the future with soccer in the United States? Well, I don't know. I, I see very few reasons for pessimism. I mean, um, the national team, I've never seen a midfield like this. Um, they're young. They're probably going to get whacked in a couple weeks, but four years from now, I, I really like their chances. So, And the women's team just goes from strength to strength. Um, but I think what's, that's interesting, I've thought a lot about the sort of internationalization of soccer um, in the last 20 years, which is something else that Generation Zero made possible. America's finally bought into the idea that this sport is something that we uh, follow in a domestic way, like we, like we follow all our other sports. But it has an international component that just sort of blows doors on everyone else in American sporting landscape. Um, the idea that I think you uh, put those numbers together in your in your Substack. The num- the amount of money being spent by networks to bring soccer into this country is extraordinary, and 
it's just going to get bigger. And the idea of it is just more and more commonplace. Well, of course I watch La Liga. And um, that's, that's following soccer, it's, which is a big departure from the idea that I follow hockey or you, you know, American football, where all I care about is the domestic competition. Soccer has opened up this world to American sports fans that is quite unique. And um, I think the rest of the world is like, yeah, we know. <laughs> Why did it take you so long? But it has hit um, in a way that I think will stand it in very good stead for a long time. And I think um, I tweeted about this this week. Uh, the MLS Cup Final was great game. I mean, maybe one of the best ever. But Americans had a hard time sort of filling their, their soccer quota between World Cups. Our national teams are outsized in importance here because there was no club soccer when soccer hit in 1989 and 90. And MLS, you know, they've done an amazing job, but it wasn't that great. Um, until about 2010, 2012. And, um, and now the NWSL, third time as a charm, appeals, appears to be a goer. And now we finally have domestic competitions that are worthy of what is a pretty mature and sophisticated soccer populace now. So, geez, those are, those are a lot of very positive things. There's got to be some downsides. Maybe you can, you can help me with those. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. You know, part of it is I, I feel like uh, there's a lot more growing for soccer to do in the United States still. There's there's millions more fans to be created. So World Cups are the best place to do that, men's and women's. Uh, and so when the U.S. men didn't qualify for 2018, it only happens once every four years. So you, that's a missed opportunity to, to create millions of new fans. They're yes. back now, though, in the World Cup. The U.S. is co-hosting the Men's World Cup in 2026. Those are huge things to create new soccer fans in this country. Um, I guess from a television perspective, my feeling is that, and you, you write about this, you know, the U.S. has gone from being one of the worst countries in the world in which to watch soccer in to on television to one of the best. And we you can see it from anywhere now. Um, the only concern I've got is because of the streaming economic situation, a lot of this you have to seek out as, a so as an existing soccer fan. And so I, I do hope that we continue to have uh, free opportunities for people who are just getting into the sport to watch the sport and not be asking them to you know, to find some very specific streaming thing that only like existing soccer fans are going to have an easy time following because there's so many streaming platforms showing soccer now. I still wish there was a some way for all of those streaming companies to get together for a licensing deal and have a, a platform <laughs> called All the Soccer. It's one thing you subscribe to <laughs> right. and everyone gets paid, but that would be the easiest way for new soccer fans to get access to watching the sport in the United States. And I say that also knowing that it's still, um, you, we can still see more Premier League games in the United States than they can in England. I know, which is crazy. No, I think that bundle has got to be coming, but you know, a couple of things that the streaming thing is, is definitely a evidence of the spotification of the American sporting mind. You know, it, it, you choose what you watch now. It doesn't just wash over you. 
Um, and that's definitely where things are going. But man, I mean, MLS uh, ratings for their regular season broadcasts are terrible. Yeah. And they're, they're terrible for hockey. They're getting worse with the NBA. This is the way it's going. So I think the streaming package idea is sort of genius. And I give them credit for taking the leap on that. So um, it, Yes, they'll be, and I hope that they bundle all that for for the rest of us somewhere down the line. But the 2018 example is interesting to me because, yeah, obviously massive blow to to miss the World Cup in 2018. But I wrote then, and I think it did come to pass. I think people had to watch MLS, you know, a little bit more because the World Cup was missed that summer specifically, yeah. and going forward, it was it was like, well, this is what people do. I mean, what else are we gonna do? We may as well bed in with my local team that I've been sort of only half watching for the last three years. And I think MLS did take a leap. Um, I mean, do you have that impression or is that just wishful thinking? I think there's something to that. And I think it's partly maybe on the television watching side, but maybe even more so on just attending games in your yeah. ta- in your city, MLS yes. games, because that's the area where MLS, I think, has had a lot of success is building local fan bases uh, they fill their stadiums pretty well at this point. And there's a lot of really nice stadiums and infrastructure in MLS that hit me when I went to Venice to do a story in Italy on uh, that club and the two young Americans, Buzio uh, and Tessman, who had signed yeah. there. And they had gone there from Kansas City in Buzio's case and, and Dallas in Tessman's case. And I interviewed them at their training facility. This is a Serie A team at the time. Yeah. And they agreed with me that their training facility was kind of a dump compared to their MLS <laughs> training facilities. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, I will say this, Venezia, I think, is building a new training ground uh, now. But like that is the, in Italy, the infrastructure training facilities, stadiums, not good. And so I I, I do think um, that is a part of what is MLS is doing on on sort of the the technical side. And that's in the new stadiums are helping draw fans. I mean, it was a very cool scene at, at, you know, the LAFC stadium, that whole atmosphere for the final over the weekend. I think that 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 is going to reach a broader audience, one, one would imagine, than normally would be the case. But um, I mean, that's the one thing that sticks out to me from the uh, the dearly departed ESPN and FS1 broadcasts was that, that the fan culture, the fan experience at all of these grounds is amazing. Yeah. Um, it, it sort of blows doors on anything you're going to see during the regular season in any sport but football where, you know, the tailgating and that's got its own deal and hats off to them. It's amazing. But yeah, soccer has built this um, for its club, its club ethos, and that's to their credit. Um, if they can turn that into streamers, you know, you know, at some bundled price, even better. But uh, uh, really interesting the way that they have grown. And now the women's game trying to get in there and, and, and get their due is going to be fascinating to watch over the next decade. The author's name is Hal Phillips. His new book is called Generation Zero, Founding Fathers, Hidden Histories, and the Making of Soccer in America. Thanks for coming on the show, Hal. Oh, my pleasure, Grant. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Hal Phillips as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.